The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome. Um, we are in Romans chapter 9 today. So if you have your Bibles, please be so kind as to open them up to Romans chapter 9. And we come to verse 5 today, which is the culmination of everything that Paul had been saying at the beginning of this chapter about the anguish that he has for his own people, the Jews, and for the great benefits that they have received. Um, Paul mentioned a number of things that were unique to the Israelites. He said, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, and this is the topper of them all, is the Christ. Now, you understand that that word Christ is a title. It is not a name. It is a word that means anointed one. That is to say, and from them, according to their race, from the flesh, comes the Messiah. That is the Savior, the Deliverer. And then he said, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says he has unceasing anguish because they have received all of these benefits, and yet in spite of all of these benefits, they have not been saved on, on the whole. And we said last week that uh, that is a challenge to us because as many of us have been raised in Christian homes, or we have been raised at least in close proximity to Christian things, Christian teachings, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're saved. They are great benefits. They are blessings. We don't want to downplay that, but that is not all that is required. And so Paul says he has unceasing anguish for his people because they have received all of these benefits, and yet they have missed the great hope of salvation. Now, I want to focus, as we begin today, on that last part, verse 5, where Paul has been listing all of these benefits, but then he gets to the end and he says, but the greatest of all the benefits is the fact that it's through them, according to the flesh, according to their race, that the Messiah, the Savior, has come, who is God over all, he says, blessed forever. Now, it's important to understand that verse 5, and this is the reason I'm treating it separately, is a somewhat contested passage in the study of the book of Romans. And part of the reason for that is that there are some scholars who say that this is not Paul referring to Jesus Christ as God overall. The way you read the text, it says that um, according to their flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, if that's the proper way to read the text, what this is, is an extraordinary claim on the part of the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he doesn't use the word Jesus, but of course that's what he's referring to. Jesus is the Christ. That's what this whole letter is all about. What he is saying is that Jesus is God overall. And there are some who have argued that 
that is not the way that the Apostle Paul customarily speaks about Jesus. And furthermore, it is not the way many of the New Testament writers customarily speak about Jesus uh, as being equal with God, necessarily. Um, Most of the time, they would argue that in the New Testament, what you discover is that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, but rarely is he equated with God. And so they would argue that given that fact, given the fact that that's the way the New Testament writers customarily speak, and given the fact the way that the Apostle Paul customarily speaks that way, this text really ought to be interpreted differently. And here's something else. They point out the fact that in the original manuscripts, there is no punctuation. And that is true in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, Most of the time, there is almost no punctuation, at least in Koine Greek, that is ancient Greek that was the common Greek spoken of the day, or in Hebrew. In order to translate these texts into English, you have to add the punctuation. And you could just imagine, if you change a punctuation mark, you can actually change the meaning of the text itself. So, for example... In the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, not the English Standard Version out of which I am reading, but out of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Does anybody else out there reading out of the RSV by any chance? Okay, if you're reading out of the Revised Standard Version, you will notice that the punctuation is somewhat different, as is the word order. So here's what it reads, Romans chapter 9, out of the the Revised Standard Version. Paul says this, beginning at verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and to them belong the patriarchs, and of their race according to the flesh, is the Christ, period. And then it goes on, God, who is over all, blessed forever, amen. Now you see, when you put that period there, after the word Christ, what it is saying is that he is the Messiah according to the flesh, but then it gives you this benediction at the end, God who is blessed forever, amen. It's as though that is a separate phrase all to itself. Whereas in the English Standard Version, it says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Now do you see how by adding the punctuation and changing the word order, you can actually change the meaning of the text? Now, here's what's interesting. Because there was no punctuation in those early texts, it's possible to render this passage both ways. If you render it the way I read it to begin with, this is a tremendous claim. This is Paul declaring Jesus Christ to be equal with God. If you render it the other way, What you're basically saying is that Jesus is the Messiah, but Paul is not necessarily equating him with God. And the argument is that because in those ancient days, the early writers rarely equated Jesus with God, 
Now, they didn't do that because they didn't believe that he was God, but they understood that they were ministering in a Jewish context. And you understand that the Jews had no concept whatsoever of the doctrine of the Trinity, did they? No, this was something that the church would come to the realization of as they studied the scriptures and as it was revealed to them. But initially, they believed that there was only one God. We believe that too, but of course, we believe in one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Jews had no concept of that, and that's one of the reasons why the New Testament writers were sometimes reluctant to refer to Jesus as God coming down from heaven and taking on flesh, because to the Jews, that would imply that God had vacated his throne in heaven. So as not to create confusion, yes, most of the time, they did not refer to Jesus as God, but as the Son of God. And so they argued that the text ought to be rendered this other way. Well, which is correct. I want to suggest to you that the way I read it the first way, the way that the ESV, the English Standard Version, renders it, and incidentally, the King James Version renders it, and the NIV Version um, renders it, is the correct way. And let me tell you why I think it is the correct way. There are a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, the word order favors it. The word order favors it. Now, as I said, they changed the word order in the Revised Standard Version. But in the original Greek, the word order is basically this, Christ, who, God. Now, remember, there's no punctuation. But we all know that the pronoun which is who, always refers back to what? What has come before, the noun, which is Christ. So the who here would be a reference back to Christ. Christ who, who what? Is God. So even without the punctuation, what I want to suggest to you is that the word order suggests that what Paul is claiming here is that The Christ is, in fact, God. Second thing is this. If you go ahead and render it the way the Revised Standard Version does, and you put that period after Christ, then you end up, as I said, with this benediction. God, who is over all, be forever praised. Now, sometimes Paul does use benedictions. There's a great example of this in Romans chapter 11, for example. But what is interesting is that Paul doesn't just throw a benediction in there for no reason. He has normally reached the culmination of some great theological argument, and it is so profound that all of a sudden he erupts in praise. He erupts in a benediction. And when you compare Romans chapter 9 with Romans chapter 11, one thing becomes very clear. This appears to be out of place as a benediction at this point, as a separate clause unto itself. That's the second reason. Third reason is that doxologies normally begin with the word blessed. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how we begin every service, isn't it? With that ascription. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this case, the blessed comes later on, not at the beginning. Who is God? Blessed forever. Amen. Furthermore, as Paul writes, one of the things that you'll notice is that he often juxtaposes phrases. 
So at the beginning, he's talking about the Messiah who is according to the flesh, which would be juxtaposed against what? Something that is not according to the flesh. In other words, something that is divine. So even though the text can be rendered in different ways, and even though the Revised Standard Version renders it a different way, and incidentally, if you look at the footnotes in the RSV, it makes it clear that it can be rendered another way, the bulk of all translations and the majority of scholars hold that what Paul is actually doing here is making an extraordinary claim. He is, in fact, declaring Jesus, the Messiah, according to the flesh, the great benefit that the Jews have, to actually be God himself. God himself. So as I said, it is true that the New Testament writers oftentimes were loath to refer to Jesus in that way. But as we're going to see, they didn't always refuse to do so. There are a number of places where they do refer to Jesus as divine. But the point is that they were trying not to create confusion, particularly among a Jewish audience. But as I said, there are some notable exceptions where Jesus is referred to as God. And this is really important for us. It's very important that we understand who Jesus is if we are expected to follow him and believe in him. I had somebody come up to me just about two years ago, somebody as I was coming into the rector's forum, who grabbed me by the elbow and said, I've got a question for you. And I said, sure. And she said, look, I have been coming to the church my whole life. Not to this church, she said, but I've been raised in the church my whole life. And I've just come to the realization of something. You're telling me that Jesus is in fact God. Now, we laugh about that, but this is somebody who had been raised. And, and this is not the first time I've heard this sort of thing. Some years ago, when I was the rector at St. David's in Chiral, I was brand new. I was only in my 20s at the time. And a man came up to me, and he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, why are you always talking about Jesus? This is what he said. Now, this man had been raised an Episcopalian his entire life. And he said, why are you always talking about Jesus? He said, when I was a kid, we never heard about Jesus. We only talked about God. And so what did he do? He made a distinction, you see, between God and Jesus. This is not as uncommon a confusion as many people think. It is a confusion that many people have. And so Paul's claim here that the Messiah, the Christ, is in fact divine. That is an extraordinary claim. And as I said, he's not the only one to make it. This is found elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, as I said, there are, you know, most of the time they're referring to Jesus as the Son of God, but there are some notable exceptions, and we should take a look at them. Uh, most of them are found in the writings of John, that is, in the Gospel of John or in the Epistles of John, but they are significant. Probably the most obvious one is in John chapter 1. So turn, if you will, to the prologue to John's gospel, John chapter 1, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is that great hymn of praise to God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, what John is saying is that in the beginning was the word. Now, the Greek term is logos, logos. And to the Greeks, the logos was that force, that power which called all things into existence. It was a term originally coined by a man by the name of Heraclides, Heraclides was the philosopher that said that the world was in a constant state of flux. Everything was always changing. Nothing remains the same. He said if you step into a river, for example, as the river's flowing by and you step back out of the river, it's not the same river. It's been changed. And one of his disciples asked, well, if the world was in a constant state of change, a constant state of flux, nothing remains the same then why does there appear to be order as opposed to chaos in the universe? I mean, there, there, there may be change, things may be constantly moving, but there has to be something that is governing that change. What is that? And Heraclides answered, there is a logos, there is a word. Now, what John does here at the beginning of his gospel is he takes that Greek philosophical idea of this word, this, it's almost like Star Wars theology, the force which holds all things together, what he says is what the Greeks call the logos is in fact God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, so far, so good. Even, even a Greek philosopher might say, well, okay, I'm willing to buy that. But then you go to verse 14, and he says the most extraordinary thing. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Nothing was made without the Word, and by Him all things came into being. And that Word, at one point in history, became what? Flesh. The Greek word is sarks. It's what you and I got up with this morning. It's what you and I bathed this morning. It's what you and I shaved this morning, at least some of us. It, it's what is frail, it's what gets sick, it's what gets diseased, it's what dies. That is an extraordinary statement by John. He is equating the Word with God, and he's saying that God, the Word, at one point, became a man. That's an extraordinary statement. You see something like this at the very end of the Gospel of John. John begins on this high note with this high-soaring Christology, and in a sense, it ends on the same note. Uh, this is the spiritual culmination or high point in the Gospel when you get to John chapter 20. It is after the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples, but one of those disciples was not present it was Thomas, you remember? Now, we don't know where Thomas was. I always imagine he was out at the grocery store buying milk or something like that. I don't know. But Jesus suddenly appears to the disciples. 
And this is how the story goes. You know it well. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now, what is Thomas declaring Jesus Christ to be? Not merely the Savior, but the Savior who is, in fact, divine. You understand, for a Jew to make that declaration, that was, many Jews would have regarded that as blasphemy, to call any human being God. The Ten Commandments were clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before me. And here is a Jewish man falling at the feet of Jesus in the wake of the resurrection and declaring him to be Lord and God. So you can see it's there. It's also there in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 20 for just a moment. Acts chapter 20. We're going to look in particular at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders. Remember, Paul had established the church in Ephesus. He's taking his leave of them. He is parting. It's, it's a very emotional parting. Paul had spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus, almost more time there than anywhere else, and it was hard for him to leave them. They were begging him not to leave, and Paul knew that he had to leave. God was calling him to other places, and he's parting with them in tears. But he gives them these words of admonition, these words of counsel, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, what does he say? Who obtained the church with his own blood? No, he says the church of God. It's the church of God whom he has obtained with his own blood. In other words, God has obtained the church by his own blood. Well, that can only be Jesus Christ because it is only God in the flesh who is capable of offering himself as a sacrifice of redemption. So we have it there in the book of Acts. I'm just going to go through some of these others rather briefly. The epistle to the Hebrews, the author there refers to Christ's throne as the throne of God, equating the two. In Titus, and this is an interesting one because every time 
we come to the back of the church. If you if you're ever walk behind the church sometime, and now that the churchyard is open, you can actually do that, you'll see a tombstone on the ground. It's dedicated to the son of Bishop Robert Smith. And it has a passage here from Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, so-and-so Smith who lies here awaiting the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how Paul refers to Jesus in the letter to Titus, as our great God and Savior. So the New Testament writers do refer to Jesus as God. They do equate him with the Father, And Paul does this frequently in other ways. For example, uh, here in this letter, in chapter 14, we'll get to that eventually, he refers to Jesus as the Lord. Now, that's a divine title, but not just the Lord, the Lord of the living and the dead. Now, what's interesting is that in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as the God of the living and the dead. So Paul is equating the two. He refers that all the fullness of deity dwells in him in Colossians 2.9. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus' pre-existence in the letter to the Galatians and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he describes Jesus as being equal with God. Now this is a great passage and it's one that's familiar to you. So just keep your finger there in Acts and turn over to Philippians for just a moment. Because this really is one that I think drives the point home. This is what is referred to as the great hymn of kenosis. And Paul is saying, how are we to live our lives? This is how we are to live our life. He says this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Now what Paul is saying there is this. Jesus was in the form of God. That is to say, he was God. But he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but instead he let it go and took the form of a servant, actually the Greek is doulos, it means bond servant, slave, and became obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So while it is true when we turn back to Romans that it wasn't always the case that the New Testament writers referred to Jesus as being equal with the Father, they often preferred the title Son of God, that was to eliminate any confusion that people might have. But it is not fair to say that the New Testament writers never referred to Jesus as being equal with God because they did, obviously, and not only did John do it, but Paul did it on numerous occasions. So going back now to Romans chapter 9, verse 5, there are a number of important things that follow. First of all, 
what Paul is teaching us in no uncertain terms is that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. That's the first thing we need to understand. He is referring to Jesus Christ as God. So the divinity of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed here. The one who is the Savior of the Jews, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the long-promised, long-anticipated Redeemer, is in fact God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, in the flesh. Now that's the second thing that is important. Jesus is not only the Messiah, and he is not only divine, he is also human. He has taken on human flesh. Paul is declaring here the great doctrine of the incarnation. And it is important too, because there was in the early church many people who believed that Jesus was divine, but who didn't believe that Jesus was fully human. Now, it's just the reverse in our culture. We have many people who are willing to acknowledge that there was an historical figure named Jesus who walked in the first century, who performed great feats, and who was crucified by the Romans. They may have doubt as to his resurrection, but they don't dispute the fact that there was such an historical figure. It's written up in all of the secular documents as well as the Christian documents. But in the early days, it was just the opposite. There were many people that believed that Jesus was divine. I mean, after all, the Romans and the Greeks believed in a whole pantheon of deities. So Jesus was just one among many. What they had a hard time believing was that Jesus actually took on human flesh. Because that didn't seem to make sense that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, God who is spirit, could ever take on frail, fallen human flesh. In fact, there was a whole school of thought within the Greek philosophy that said that the whole purpose of life was to escape the flesh, to escape the body, that the body doesn't really matter. What really matters is the spirit. When we die, it doesn't really matter what happens to the body. This is one of the reasons why the pagans, incidentally, used to burn their dead. And it's why, for centuries, the church resisted cremation. Not because they didn't think that God was capable of bringing the atoms back together again on the day, great day of resurrection. It's because they wanted to remind people that God does care about the body and that there will be a resurrection of the body and that God himself has taken on human flesh. Now, in those early days, there was a heresy that argued that Jesus was divine, but he was not truly human. He only appeared to be human. And the heresy was known as docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that, of course, is that it means that when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross... He really didn't die, he only appeared to die. And he really didn't suffer, he only appeared to suffer. Now you can imagine what the implications of that are for your life and for mine. It's because if nobody actually paid the price for our sins and the wages of sin is death, then what that means is that you and I are still in our sin. So what Paul is declaring here is not only that Jesus Christ is God, but that God himself has come down and actually taken on human flesh. And he suffered, literally suffered, and actually died, 
for your sins and for mine, that we might be delivered from the bondage of sin and death. This is why the author of Hebrews can say, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. Do you know what a comfort that is? To know that whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, whatever difficulties you're up against, God has already been there. You're not calling out to a God who is incapable of understanding your struggles, your doubts, your fears. Jesus struggled. Jesus struggled with the prospect of his own death. Don't you remember the Garden of Gethsemane where he was so troubled in spirit that he was actually sweating drops of blood? That's a God that you can cry out to because that's a God who understands. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. That's why verse 5 is so significant in chapter 9. He is declaring Jesus Christ to be God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, but he's also declaring him to be the one who has taken on our flesh and paid the price for your sin and for mine. And as a consequence, he is over all. You do understand that if there is a God in the universe, it only stands to reason he is the most important thing. I mean, what could be more important if, if there is a God who calls all things into existence and who created you and me? It only stands to reason that he is, by definition, the most important thing in the universe. And if, in fact... That God has taken on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. You understand that that means that Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the universe. He should be the most important thing in your life. More important than your children. More important than your spouse. More important than your job. More important than anything. It just stands to reason. And therefore, he should be praised, or as the text says, blessed forever. We should be giving our whole lives over as, and we say this in the liturgy every Sunday, living sacrifices. As offerings unto God. We say this, you know the words, and here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9 in that one verse. Is that God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, the one by whom all things were made, at one point in history took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and paid the price for your sin and mine, and has been exalted to the highest place, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this helps us to understand why Paul says he has unceasing anguish for his own people. They have all of these benefits, but this is the greatest benefit of all. God has walked among them. They have seen his glory. And yet they have refused to believe. Unceasing anguish. 
But he goes on to say this, the very next verse. But it is not as though, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring of the flesh, are the true children of Abraham. One of the challenges that the early Christians faced, particularly the apostles, Peter and Andrew, James, John, and of course Paul and Barnabas and others, is that when they began to preach the message of the gospel, when they began to preach that Jesus was the Messiah, and not just some sort of political or military Messiah, you understand that that's, that's what the, the Jews basically believed the Messiah was going to be. He was going to be some sort of political or military figure who was going to come and deliver the nation and reestablish the glory days of David and Solomon. You know, we still think that way today. That's why we get so excited every time there's an election cycle. Oh, we're going to take back the country. We're going to win. Whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, that's what we think. I'm reminded of what Chuck Colson once said. Chuck Colson was speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast. This was some years ago. He was speaking on that occasion, and the President of the United States was supposed to be there, but the President was late. And so they, they, they didn't know if the president had been held up or there had been some national crisis or anything. So they started the prayer breakfast without the president. Then, of course, when the president arrived, there was this huge kerfuffle out there in the, in the vestibule and so forth. You know how it is. And all of a sudden, the president arrives, and no president arrives quietly. And everybody's eyes suddenly turn toward the president of the United States. And there's Chuck Colson. He's the keynote speaker. And nobody's looking at him. And he simply leaned into the microphone and he said, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. <laughs> but that's what we think, isn't it? That's, that's what we think. Oh, when the president comes, whoever he is, he's going to change everything. He's going to save the culture. He's going to bring the country back to greatness. Well, you know, the Jews thought that too. That's what they were expecting, some sort of political or military Messiah. That's what they were hoping for. But Paul says that's not the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. And so the result was that many of the people rejected Jesus. And this was troublesome to the early apostles because obviously the promises that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 9, all of the advantages, all of the benefits were for whom? For the Jews. They had received all of these benefits. They had received the covenants. They had received the promises. And it appears as though the promises are not being kept because the people, by and large, are rejecting the Christ. They have rejected Jesus. Indeed, they crucified him. So, Paul, how do you answer that? Well, Paul's response to that is what we see in this verse. He said, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. Paul makes a distinction between 
ethnic Israel and what he calls the true Israel. Let me repeat that. Paul makes a distinction between what he calls ethnic Israel and the true Israel. As I said, there was a disappointing response on the part of the Jews in those early days. Let me give you a very vivid example of this. Turn to the book of Acts. It's the book that immediately precedes Romans to chapter 13. If you've been with me for any length of time, you know that I regard Acts chapter 13 as one of the most significant chapters in the New Testament. It's significant because of what it stands for in the life of the early church. This was the beginning of the missionary era. Up to this point, the Christians shared their faith, but in a very passive or reactive way. But all of a sudden, when you get to Acts chapter 13, they're not being reactive anymore. They're being proactive. They're not waiting for opportunities to come to them. They are actually seeking opportunities. Acts chapter 13 tells the story of Paul and Barnabas being sent out by the church in Antioch to preach the gospel. That was the beginning of the first of Paul's missionary journeys. And you and I are sitting here today because of those missionary journeys. That's why Acts chapter 13 is so significant. Now, when they started off on those missionary journeys, they traveled from Antioch. We're going to come back to the church in Antioch because it's a very significant church. They started off at the church in Antioch, these two apostles, Paul and Barnabas. They went down the coast to a place called Seleucia, which was a port city along the coast. And then they took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus. And they preached on the Isle of Cyprus, and they faced opposition. They left Cyprus. They went back up to the continent to a place called Pisidian Antioch, and that's where we're going to pick up the story here. It's in Pisidian Antioch. They went into the synagogue. That was their practice. Paul always went to the synagogues to preach the gospel first. And Acts chapter 13 tells about how he preached in there and talked about Jesus, talked about the salvation and so forth. And when the service came to an end, this is where we pick it up, verse 42. As they were leaving, the people begged that these things be told to them the next Sabbath. I've always said that this is every preacher's dream, that when you get done with the sermon, the people are begging you, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop, as opposed to this. Or worse yet. You know, they think their watch has stopped because things are going on for so long. But in this particular occasion, Paul and Barnabas had just preached the gospel to the people, and they didn't want them to stop. We're told they went out begging that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they go into the synagogue on one Sabbath. They preach the gospel. People are enthralled with the message. They're cut to the quick. Their hearts are warmed. They're moved. And they've been invited to come back the next week. But something happens in the intervening days between that Sabbath and the next. What happens is this. There are some people who don't like what Paul has to say, and so they stir up trouble. Now, the word has gotten out. This is the important thing to understand. The word has gotten out 
that these two men have come from afar, from Jerusalem. They're proclaiming that the Messiah has arrived, and the Messiah is the person of Jesus. And as this spread through the community, we're told the next Sabbath, the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It would be like we preach week in and week out and, and, you know, we get a moderate response and then all of a sudden we bring in some preacher from off, some guest preacher, and he preaches and it, we, it was just so fantastic. They said, you've got to have him back next week. And he says, oh, I can come back next week and the next thing you know, the whole church is filled. That, that's very hard on the rector. You know, that's really hard on the guys that are here week in and week out. Well, that's what happened on this occasion. I'll tell you who it's also hard on. It's hard on the people who come week in and week out, and they have their normal pew to sit in. And then they come back the next week, and guess what? Somebody's in my pew. Where did these people come from? Who are these folks? Well, that's exactly what happened here. This is no exaggeration. If you take a look at verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." Now, this is what happened almost every place that the Apostle Paul went on those missionary journeys. He would go first into the synagogues because he had a place of contact there. They believed the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures. This was a great starting point to preach the gospel. But what he discovered was that every time he preached the gospel, there was division between those who believed and those who did not believe. And on the part of those who did not believe, they stirred up trouble persecution and drove Paul out of that place. And so Paul found that he had much more success among the Gentiles than he did among his own people, the Jews. Now that was the pattern over and over again. And yet Paul knew the promises had been made to the Jews. So has God failed in his promises? Paul's own experience would indicate that. But Paul's response to that accusation is that no, no, that's not the case because not all who claim to be the children of Abraham are in fact the true children of Abraham. Just because they claim to be Israelites doesn't mean that they are the true Israelites. Paul makes that distinction. Now, somebody might say that sounds like an argument from desperation. That, that, that sounds like Paul just didn't have great success, and so now he's got to sort of justify the fact that the Jews have not accepted, that his message has not been accepted by the people. What I want to suggest to you is that this is not merely an argument from desperation. Actually, this had always been the case. Paul knew this was the case in the Old Testament, you know that following the death of King David and the death of Solomon, there was a division in Israel between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom became very progressive. The southern kingdom, at least for a time, remained loyal. But 
As the centuries went by, one of the things you begin to notice is that even the kings in the southern kingdom became wicked and evil, and the result is that God brought down judgment on his people. He brought down judgment on the northern kingdom around the year 721 BC when Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. That's the northern kingdom. And then, sometime later, there was the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians, and they were carried off into captivity. There were so few people actually believing in God and following the commandments that God brought judgment upon his people and they were carried away into Assyria, carried away into Babylon, and their land was taken over by others. Which just goes to show us that way back in the Old Testament, there were many people who were Jews ethnically, but they were not following God. That's why the judgment had come upon them. And the same thing was true, incidentally, in the time of Christ. There were many people who claimed to be Jews, but when the Messiah finally arrived, they missed it completely. I mean, when you look at all of the scriptures that are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, it's astonishing. You know, Paul writing to the Galatians said, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. At just the right time. I want you to think about that for a minute. I love that expression, at just the right time. You know, people said, why did God send his son in the first century? Why wouldn't he send him in the 21st century? Let me tell you why it was the ideal time for the savior of the world to arrive. There were a number of factors. First of all, in the first century, it was a period of relative peace. The first time there was relative peace in all the world. Now, this doesn't mean that this was a nonviolent time. There's always been violence in history. But comparatively speaking, this was a period in which there was relative peace and safety in the world. This was the age of the famed Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Romans had really subdued almost everyone, and there was relative peace in the world. Here's something else. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. In the first century, that was quite literally true. The Romans were many things, and one of the things they were were great road builders. Everywhere they went, they built these roads, some of which are still in use in Europe and Britain today. You can go and actually drive on a Roman road. You can pass over a Roman aqueduct. Roads and aqueducts that were built thousands of years ago and are still in use today. And that's because if the Romans were going somewhere and they came to a mountain, they didn't simply go around it, they would tunnel right through it. Rome was like the hub of a great wagon wheel and the spokes went out in every direction. It was possible to get to anywhere in the known world relatively easily in the first century. So it was a time of relative peace. It was a time in which travel was easy. And here's something else. It was the first time in history when most people spoke the same language. Now that didn't mean that people didn't have their own dialects. You know that the official language of the Roman Empire was what? Latin, absolutely. But Latin was not the lingua franca of the day. The language that most people spoke in terms of commerce and business, was Greek. 
That's why people are shocked to say, well, you know, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they were just common fishermen. They were just speaking Aramaic, a, a form of Hebrew. How could they write the New Testament in Greek? It's because they were multilingual, as most people were in that day, as many people in Europe are today. The reason why Americans aren't is because English has become the lingua franca of the day, the language that almost everybody speaks. I mean, I've traveled overseas extensively. In almost every country I go, the people can speak English. The French don't appreciate it when we try to speak French because we just botch it up. And they said, let's just talk in English. But I found that even in the Middle East, everybody spoke English for the most part. It's really quite remarkable. The first time that had ever taken place was in the ancient world. Now think about that. That meant that the first century was a veritable petri dish for the growth of Christianity. You could travel anywhere with relative ease. All roads led to Rome and to every other point of the compass. You could do that in relative safety. The Roman legions were everywhere, patrolling the roads like the highway patrol, keeping people safe. And everybody spoke the same language. If you could speak Greek, you could proclaim the gospel quite literally to every creature. Now you think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ came at just the right time. And that is why Christianity was so explosive in its growth in those early days. And yet there was this disappointing response. Now promises were to Israel, and yet Paul says, those promises appear to have been broken, but he said it wasn't actually the case. This is not an argument from desperation. What he is saying is that not everybody who claims to be a Jew is a true Jew. Any more than everybody who claims to be a true Christian is a true Christian. But God's promises were fulfilled to those who were the true Israel who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. You know, as I said, Jesus arrived at this particular point in history. It was the right time, and yet most people missed it. But you'll notice not everybody missed it. If you come into our church, into St. Philip's, and you come into the narthex, right above the doors, entering into the sanctuary, into the nave of the church, there is a painting by Charles D'Antonio, one of our own members. You ever seen it? You know what it's called? The Nunc Dimittis. It comes from the words of the old man Simeon. We're told that when Jesus was born on the eighth day, according to the law, he was taken to the temple where he was circumcised. Every male child had to have that done on the eighth day. And Jesus was taken up, and as he was taken up into the temple, Mary and Joseph encountered two people. Now, there would have been Hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, milling around in the temple complex at that point. But they encountered two, we're told. One was an old man, Simeon, who took the child in his arms, and that's what that painting depicts. Incidentally, Joseph in that painting is modeled after the Warlick's son-in-law, David Gilbert. And Mary is modeled after their daughter, but Simeon takes the Christ child in his arms and he looks up to heaven having looked at this child and he says, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared for all the world to see. 
a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Most people missed it, but there was an old man who'd been longing for the redemption of Israel, we're told, who recognized the Messiah. They also encountered an old woman. You remember her name? Anna. And Anna had precisely the same response when she saw the Christ child. We're told that she had been longing for the redemption of Israel, and she went and shared the news with all those who had been longing for the redemption. So when Christ came, there were Jews everywhere. There were Jews on that day that he was taken up to the temple to be circumcised. Everybody missed it, but two people... And they didn't know Mary and Joseph. They didn't know the Christ. But when they saw him, it was as though the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, this is the one. And that spirit bore witness to their spirit. And as a consequence, they were able to recognize him. They were Jews, but Paul would say they were part of the true Israel. Not just ethnic Israel, but true Israel. The Israel that sees through the eyes of faith. Those are the true followers of Abraham and the true children of the promise. Now that is significant. And I don't know how much time we're going to be able to have today to get through the rest of this, but let me just try to do it as quickly as possible. If Paul is making a distinction between the true Israelite and just the ethnic Israel, what does it take to be a true Israelite? What does it take to be an Anna or a Simeon? What is he saying here? Well, what he is saying is that all of these other things that he mentions, all of these other benefits that the Jews had, he says they have adoption, they have glory, they have covenants, they have the giving of the law, they have the worship, they have the promises, they have the patriarchs. From them has come God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, and yet he says they have not been saved. They have not believed. And you say, well, if these things are not sufficient, what is sufficient to be a true Israelite? Only one thing. It is to believe on the one God has sent. To be a true Israelite is not just to be one ethnically. It is to be one of faith. It is to be a descendant of Abraham by belief in the promise. Now, Paul has already made this argument. You may recall back in Romans chapter 4. He talks about Abraham being declared righteous. And what is interesting is that Abraham was declared righteous because he believed in God, and that was before the law was even given. The law wouldn't be given for another 400 years under Moses. And yet, Abraham was considered righteous, that is, in a right relationship with God. Why? Because he believed in the promises of God, the promises that find their fulfillment in whom? In Jesus. So to be a true Israelite is not simply to have all of these things, as wonderful as they are, but to believe in the one in whom all these things find their Fulfillment. Now that is significant because the same distinction that Paul makes between ethnic Israel and true Israel can also be made between those who are Christians in name only and Christians who are truly the followers of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That if Paul says there's a distinction between those who are just Jews ethnically, that is according to the flesh, and Jews who are truly the followers of God, children of the promise, then the same thing is true of those who claim to be Christians in name only. 
and are not truly the followers of Jesus Christ. There are few terms that have been more debased in our culture than the term Christian. You ask many people and they'll say, oh, they are Christians. If you ask them on a form to write out what their religious preference is, they'll put down Christian. That doesn't mean they've been in church in the last 40 years. But they regard themselves as Christian. This is particularly true in places that are referred to as Christian nations. If you ask most British citizens, what are you? Are you a Christian? Are you a Muslim? What is your religious preference? Most of them will write down Christian. Why? Because they're nominally members of the Church of England. If you've been born there in the parish, then technically you are a member of the Church of England, even if you've never stepped foot inside the parish church. What does it mean to be a Christian, a true Christian, not just a Christian in name only? I think I pointed out last week or two weeks ago that the motto of the German Wehrmacht, the German army during World War II, was God for us. And yet look what Germany was doing to the Jews in the 1930s. They claimed to be followers of God, but were they truly the followers of God? You see, you can, be, you can claim to be something, but it doesn't make it so. That's what Paul is saying here. It's not as though the promises of God have failed. It's just that there is a distinction between the true Israel and ethnic Israel, and there is a distinction, my friends, between true Christians and those who are Christians in name only. What does that word Christian mean? Very good. The answer is little Christ. And do you remember where they were first called Christians? At Antioch. That's right, at Antioch. We referred to Antioch a moment earlier. Antioch in the first century was an incredibly corrupt city, folks. Terribly so. It was a sewer. In fact, one Roman senator was complaining that the problem in Rome was that the Orontes, that was the river on which Antioch was built, he said the Orontes had been diverted into the Tiber. In other words, the sewage that was coming out of Antioch was flowing into Rome and corrupting the entire empire. That's how bad it was. And yet we're told that following the death of Stephen, the Christians were scattered and some of them went to Antioch and they took their faith with them and they established a church and by their sheer presence, they began to transform this community. And people began to refer to them as Christians, little Christ's. Here's what's fascinating about that. It wasn't the Jews calling them Christians because the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they weren't themselves calling themselves Christians. They called themselves saints. They called themselves the brethren. They referred to themselves as the followers of the way. Who was calling them little Christ? The heathen. It was the pagans who were calling them little Christ, because they saw in them something that was legitimate, genuine, something that reflected in their lives, in their conduct, the person and the character of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Is that true for us? Are we Christians in name only? Oh, that's just what I am. I'm a Christian. 
Or do people actually look at us and they see in us the person of Jesus Christ, the character of Jesus Christ? Do they say, there goes a little Jesus? Because Paul says that what was true for the Israelites is also true for us. Well, I asked the question, what does it take to be a true Israelite? Just bear with me for one minute more. What does it take to be a true Christian? Not just a Christian in name only, but a true Christian. Let me suggest to you four things, just very briefly. First of all, to be a Christian means to believe in Christ. And perhaps a better way to put that is to believe on Christ. Not simply to believe that Jesus exists or even to believe that he is the Son of God. True faith contains three elements. It contains, these are the Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia means content. You believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You just don't believe anything. But even if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, even if you can stand up in church on Sunday and say the creed without crossing your fingers, you do understand that that's not enough. You have to not only know what is being taught, but you agree with it. That's the ascensus. You know that the church teaches that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, God in the flesh, come to be our Redeemer, and you not only know that, but you agree with it. But even that is not enough. It is possible to be correct in your doctrine and still miss the heart of Christianity. The Pharisees were orthodox. They were the conservatives of their day, and yet they despised Jesus. You not only have to know what the church teaches about Jesus, you not only have to agree with it, but you have to commit yourselves to him. So the first thing that is required in order to be a true Christian is that you believe on Christ. I say it's like jumping out of an airplane. If you're riding along in the airplane and there's a parachute in the back and the parachute is there in the case that you need it, well, you don't really think about the parachute, do you? You believe that, yes, it can save you. You understand what it's there for. You've, you, you've got the content of it. You agree that in, in a time of crisis, yes, it's something that you want to put on, but let's be honest, you're not really trusting on that piece of nylon until what? Until the engines are sputtering and you're spiraling toward your death. Then you strap it on and the only thing between you and certain destruction is that parachute. Then you're trusting on it, you see. So to be a true Christian means to believe on Christ. Here's the second thing. It means to follow Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A person cannot say that they love Jesus if they are living their life that is contrary to Jesus. So to be a true Christian means to believe in Christ. It is to follow Christ. It is to witness to Christ. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not really comfortable with that. I'm an introvert as opposed to an extrovert. Okay. St. Francis once said to his followers, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Live your life the way Christ lived his life and people will ask you, why is it that you are different from everybody else? Then you'll have the opportunity to simply share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. But a true follower of Jesus Christ does that. It's interesting to note that when the Apostle Paul was converted in Acts chapter nine, 
We're told that he didn't know much about Jesus. He just met Jesus. He'd been working against Jesus, persecuting the church. And yet we're told that after his conversion on the road to Damascus, immediately Paul began to preach that Jesus was the Christ. Immediately. Because he'd been born again. You've heard me say this before. What's the first thing the doctor listens for when a child is born? A cry. Why? Because the cry is the evidence of new life. If a person has really been transformed in Jesus Christ, they want to share that good news with others. They're seizing the opportunities as they present themselves. Here's the fourth thing that is required, that you learn about Jesus Christ. You want to learn more about him. You want to learn more of him. You cannot get enough of Jesus Christ. We're told in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the Word of God. How often do you open your Bible? Twice a week? On Thursdays, when the rector teaches his Bible study on Romans? On Sunday, when the rector's forum, and he gives you you know, the guilt trip about the fact that you're not bringing your Bibles to church? Is that when you open your Bibles? Are we reading, marking, learning, inwardly digesting the Word of God day in and day out? That's a sign you see that you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ. What Paul wants us to do here in Romans chapter 9 is to examine ourselves. Don't assume that you're a Christian, Paul says, any more than a Jew could assume that they were Jews just because they were of the flesh. The true Israel were those who had accepted the promise, the Messiah, and the true Christian is the one who likewise follows Jesus Christ even unto their life's end. I'll leave you with this. Every Ash Wednesday at the beginning of Lent, we offer what is known as the invitation to a holy Lent. And here's what we say. Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and resurrection, and it became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. This season of Lent provided a time in which the converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, had been separated from the body of the faithful were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness and restored to the fellowship of the church. Thereby, the whole congregation was put in mind of the message of pardon and absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior and the need which all Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith. That's a critical phrase. The need which all Christians have to continually repent. You repent once and you keep doing it. It's a daily thing. And we renew our faith. I invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. Well, that's my invitation to you today. Examine yourself. God has come in the flesh among us, my friends, the Savior of the world. Jesus is no mere man. He is, in fact, the King of glory. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made.
And it's not enough to just give lip service to that. You have to really believe in him. You have to really follow him daily. You have to bear witness to him. And you have to learn from him. It's not as though the promises of God have failed. It's always been this way. There are those who are the true Israel and those who are ethnic Israel. There are those who are Christians in truth. There are Christians who are those in name only. Which one are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's words here in Romans. Just these two verses there is such a challenge to us. There are so many things that we need to really take a look at in our own lives. We should never presume that we are Christians. We need to examine ourselves and ask if we are really following. When people look at our lives, do they see in us the character, the person of Jesus Christ? Grant us the willingness to see ourselves as we really are. And if we are falling short of the mark, to repent and seek your forgiveness and grace, to renew our faith in you, and to follow you always, even into the end of our days. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.